0: Welcome. This is podcast number three for our study of the Gospel of Mark together. This podcast is entitled Purity. This coming Sunday in our study together at St. Mark's, we're going to be moving into the, the next quarter, the second quarter of Mark's Gospel. It'll take us actually two Sundays to cover this section. This section of Mark, this quarter of Mark, runs from Mark four thirty-five, so the end of chapter 4, through the middle of chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 26. That's the long section, 435 to 826. The, in terms of the geography of this section, up until now we've been in Galilee, mostly around Capernaum. Now Galilee is still home base. Capernaum certainly is still home base. But now Jesus is on the move a whole lot more. He's traveling almost continually continually. And often he travels across the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee becomes the new crucial geographic marker for this second quarter of Mark's Gospel. I'd like you to think about that. I wish we had a map that I could show you right now, but you've probably seen quite a few Bible maps and uh, have some sense of where the Sea of Galilee is and what it looks like, basically. Even if you don't, even if you've never seen such a map, I'd like you to imagine a lake that is roughly kidney bean shaped or kidney shaped. It's uh, longer north-south than it is east-west. Um, it's, um, it's wider toward the, toward the northern end and narrower toward the southern end. In terms of its size, it runs about 15 miles north-south and about 8 miles east-west at its longest and widest points. That's the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum, the town of Capernaum, is on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus has been located so far most of the time. And now I'd like you to... um, Imagine also a a line coming straight north-south through the Sea of Galilee. That line is the Jordan River. It it comes down from the north, and it enters the Sea of Galilee on the north, about in the middle. And then if you draw the line straight through the Sea of Galilee down to the south end, where where the Jordan River emerges to flow south down to the Dead Sea, that's our geographic marker. The lake itself is the marker. But it's really that line, that north-south line, that's the crucial marker. That line is the line between Israel and other, other lands. It's the line between the pure land of Israel and the unclean land of the Gentiles. It's the land between us and them. And if you're looking at a map, the left side, the west side, is the us side. The east side, the right side is the them side. I never really had a, a real, a key feel for that, the power of that line until not very many years ago and it took some, some study under Jewish scholars before I could really catch that, that sense. This section of Mark is dominated by three dramatic boat scenes, three crossings of the sea where the event, the key event happens on the sea and there's stuff happening with Jesus and his disciples. The whole section begins with one of those that's the story of Jesus stilling the storm. They go off to cross the sea. The disciples are scared stiff because they're battling the wind and the waves while Jesus is sleeping in the boat. They wake him and he questions their their trust and he stop, he calms he, he rebukes the waves and the and the wind, and everything becomes calm. The second scene. Is a similar one. It comes toward the end of chapter six. Jesus has sent the disciples off ahead of him this time, and there's another storm. And Jesus comes walking across the water. Mark actually tells us Jesus was intending to pass them by, but they saw him, thought he was a ghost. They're terrified. He says, "Don't worry, it's uh, it's me." He takes them in on in take they take him in on in into the ship, and everything becomes calm again. The third, the third scene is in chapter 8, almost at the end of the section. This time there's no outward storm. I want to contend that in, every, all, in all three of these scenes, there's an inner storm. The disciples have an inner storm going on. And in this last one, it's certainly their inner storm that takes, takes center stage. So three dramatic boat scenes where Jesus and his disciples, the disciples in particular, are struggling. Now, some other features of those three storms. First, if you remember that line between us and them, between east and west, between the clean land and the unclean land, that's where Jesus is telling the disciples we should, we should cross over to. The whole section begins in chapter 4, verse 35, with Jesus saying to the disciples, let's go across to the other side. Well, until I came to understand the power of that line and what that's all about, Jesus' request just sounded like a pretty pedantic and normal. Hey, let's go across to the other side of the lake. No big deal when Jesus says let's go across to the other side that's striking terror into the into the hearts of the disciples it's totally upsetting their equilibrium they don't want to go over there because over there is alien territory that's going to form the the real center of our conversation on Sunday and our exploration of what's actually happening in Mark's gospel because this Jesus that we have seen crossing lines all throughout Mark so far and drawing in people that are across the lines is now crossing a major line for Israelites, for, for Jewish believers. Crossing to the other side. So we're going to watch the geography throughout on Sunday. We'll be watching the geography throughout this section. Which side of the lake is Jesus on at any given time and what's happening there? So that other side, the line between us and them, between the people who are like us and the people who are not like us, is the crucial line of this section. The other feature of these three storms is that the disciples are balking. They don't want to go. And it's going to prove it, they're going to prove increasingly dysfunctional as this section goes on. In chapter 6, Jesus will send them out on a mission trip in Galilee, And they'll be highly successful. They'll be effective. But by the end of the section, it's clear they're becoming less and less effective because they're terrified of that line. Well, this four-chapter sweep of Mark's Gospel can be divided into three main movements with one of those great crossings in each of the movements. The first movement, 435-66a, to Jesus' power over impurity. The second movement, 66B to to 656, Jesus, the true king. And then chapter 7 and as much of chapter 8 as we've got in this section, Jesus, bread for the world. This coming Sunday, we will be looking at the first two of those three movements. We'll save the third one for a week from Sunday. That's where we're going. That's the geography and the narrative shape of this next piece of Mark. What I'd like to spend our time on now is the the whole issue of purity, the world of Levitical purity. The reason is that purity now emerges as a major issue, first in chapter 5, and then in a major passage in chapter 7. So we'll get one of those passages this Sunday, another one the following Sunday. Well, we need to ask, first of all, when we talk about purity codes, what in the world are purity codes? We don't feel them as clearly in American culture because we have been such a hodgepodge, a mixture of lots of cultures coming together, and that has eroded our own native purity codes. But every culture in the world, every people, has its own purity code, its own code of what belongs where, what's appropriate and what is not, what do you participate in, and what do you not? What do you wear, and what don't you wear? Um, we we can get some glimpses. Sometimes uh, elements of purity code emerge from what I would call the "ew" factor. I remember once when I was out walking and came came around a corner and suddenly almost stumbled over a dead and decaying bird, and before before I, my mind could even work, my guts went ew. No, I didn't actually throw up, but that kind of wrenching Ew, feeling inside, the u factor. Often purity gets built out of what sort of gut le- the gut-level gut responses that we have. It's not purely that, though. Uh, purity codes are culturally shaped. What I mean by that is all I have to do is ask you, um, how long has it been since you had dog for supper? And I don't mean hot dogs. I mean dog meat. I don't know if you actually went inside or not, but as as I'm sure you're aware, there are Eastern cultures that for whom for whom uh, dog is an appropriate meat for for supper. Here in the West, it's not because we have we have uh, trained dogs in different ways in, in our culture, and we have a different attitude toward dogs. We don't eat dog unless we're absolutely forced to it. Um, I can think of other pieces of an, of an innate purity code that I grew up in. I don't know if you grew up in the same. In my growing up in the 50s and early 60s, in um, the upper Midwest, in a, in a white, largely nor- nor- Northern European white, um, Midwest culture, there were things that we didn't participate in. Our culture did not have body piercings or tattoos. It wasn't until, for me personally, it wasn't until we moved to Southern California in my sophomore year of high school, and I began to see little Hispanic girls wearing pierced, wearing pierced earrings, earrings in their pierced ears. And it looked totally natural and normal because it belonged in that culture. Um, in the culture I was part of, pierced ears at that point were not part of what was allowed. That has, has of course, changed greatly. Um, in the culture I grew up in, you did not cross dress. Men did not wear women's clothing, and women did not wear men's clothing. They could get away with some pants maybe, but that—that's a piece of purity code. Um, it might involve what you wear to church. It might involve whom you can marry. Purity codes will often involve um, where things belong. Uh, one example would be if I were to, um, if I'm wearing my hiking boots outside and I've been in the mud and whatever else, and, and maybe I knock them off and clean them off a little bit and they're, they're perfectly clean outside, but then I bring them into the house and set them on the kitchen table. No. You do not set your boots on the kitchen table. They don't belong there. Now, regardless of the scientific evidence of how dirty our kitchen tables actually are, where in terms of hygiene, the boots might not make a whole lot of difference, but that's a purity matter. Boots do not belong on the table where food goes. Food goes there, not boots. Where things belong is purity. Well, every culture has them even though ours in America tends to be pretty weak. Uh, General questions we can ask about purity codes, where do they come from? Are they logical? Are they systematic? Not usually. Well, then what? what? What do they arise from? What are they trying to accomplish? How do they work? Israel's purity code, the Levitical purity code, in itself also was not unique. Um, I did some study of the ancient Near Eastern purity codes, the purity codes in the nations and cultures surrounding Israel at one point, and found that a great deal. there's a great deal of overlap between Israel's purity and the purity of the surrounding nations. They agreed about a lot of things. There'd be some differences, but most of the code agreed. I became convinced the more I studied Israel's purity law, that Israel's purity law is really, I'm convinced, native, native uh, cultural purity of the area, but now shaped, reshaped, for a particular purpose, almost as kind of a living visual aid. So, what is Leviticus's purity code? First of all, where do we find the the purity code? In Scripture, you will find it primarily in a 10-chapter chunk with a couple-chapter addition after, so maybe 12 chapters altogether, in the book of Leviticus, everybody's favorite book to read. This would be Leviticus 11 through 20, primarily, plus an addendum in 20 and 21. That's the primary place. Then you'll find bits and pieces of the Purity Law in in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. And it also, it's also reflected in some strange ways in the creation story. But the primary place is Leviticus. What's in it? What's in Israel's purity law? Now just to run down the, the contents of that section of Leviticus... The first thing you come across is clean and unclean animals. Which animals can you eat? Which animals can you not eat? The, clean, the food laws. The second thing that comes up is childbirth. That, And here's, here you catch a glimpse of the fact that for something to be impure or unclean doesn't mean it's bad, necessarily. Israel certainly wanted to have their babies. They wanted, they wanted childbirth. But at that moment of childbirth, both the mother and the child are set apart as unclean for a particular amount of time, until the time passes and certain washings take place and certain sacrifices are offered. You get two chapters worth of the impurity of what's called leprosy. It's not the leprosy that we know of in the New Testament. That's a different disease that came in later. But this is a collection instead of different skin diseases and also funguses that show up, fungi, that show up on, on walls and on tents and on, on pots and pans and things like that. So growths that, that come on the surfaces of things. Uh, chapter 5 in Leviticus is, is genital emissions, bodily flows, uh, genital bodily flows, normal ones. And abnormal ones. Chapter sixteen is the Day of Atonement, which is meant to to cleanse and wash away the nation's sin for the year, but also the uncleannesses of the year. Chapter seventeen is the proper handling of blood. Blood is a key issue for purity. Blood, in chapter in Leviticus seventeen. We're told that the the life of the animal or the person is in the blood, and so blood needs, needs special handling. If you're going to sacrifice an animal or slaughter an animal, you don't consume its blood. You slit the throat in such a way that the blood will be, will be poured out into the ground and received by the ground. It needs proper care. Chapter 18 is the proper handling of seed, semen, sexual fluid. Uh, chapter 12. Uh, chapter 19 is um, a kind of a purity ethics. and chapter 20 lists some penalties for violation and then returns to the issue of foods again. Chapters 21 and 22 uh, look at the issues of the priests and sacrifice. Both the priests, priests can only serve if their bodies are whole, if they're not disfigured in some way. And sacrifices can be offered only if those the animal is is whole and unimpaired. In addition to what we find there, there, then there's a couple of other things too. One that shows up in both in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus 19 is mixtures. We'll look at those in a moment. You don't mix two kinds of things together. And then finally, one of the primary contagions, and this pops up all over the Torah, is contact with dead bodies. Corpse contact is one of the one of the worst contagions, one of the worst impurities. And t- you, have, you have to be separated for quite a long time and go through several washings. That's the kind of stuff that's there. Um, notice how, notice how these, the things cluster together. An awful lot of those have to do with the body, with the human body or the animal body, but primarily the human body. What goes into your body? What comes out of your body? It has to do with the surface of the body. Is the surface of your body whole or is it blotchy? Are there things, are there disfigurements on the surface? Is your body whole or is it impaired in some way or another? So a lot of body stuff. A second key clustering has to do with the mysteries of birth and death. These these threshold moments of life, the the boundary issue of coming into the world and of leaving the world, and so uh, at a ch- time of childbirth, there both mother and child are unclean for a period of time, and if you have contact with a dead body at the end, there is unclean. You are unclean for quite some time, and then mixtures mixing things together. Let me, let me actually read that one to you so you get a feel for that because it's one of the oddest ones for our thinking. I'm reading this from Leviticus 19, verses 19 and 20. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your animals breed with a different kind. So no hybridizing. You shall not sow your field with two different kinds of seed nor shall you put on a garment made of two different materials. You can't put linen and wool together and wear them. Strange laws. In, in Hebrew culture, that's the law of two kinds. You're not to mix two kinds together. Similar law in um, Deuteronomy 22. Now, in, along with all of these, that whole sweep of things going on in Leviticus um, has an envelope to it as well. I want to share with you how the whole section begins and how it ends. Here's how it begins. In Leviticus 10, here's the first time that we have uh, some kind of instruction about cleanness and uncleanness. The Lord spoke to Aaron, and now he gives instructions for not being, not having consumed any alcohol when they come in to serve at worship, um, but then, verse, this is Leviticus ten ten. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken. You are to distinguish. The Hebrew verb there to distinguish, to separate, to. Um, Divide out the two sides. That's part of what purity law is all about. Now it goes through all those other kinds of rules and regulations that we talked about. And then at the end of the section, at the end of chapter 20, um, there's a little sermonette there. And I'm going to start now in in chapter 20, verse 25. You shall therefore make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean, between the clean bird and the unclean. They haven't been talking. I'm sorry, I forgot to mention that the very first piece of purity that that the whole section talks about then in chapter 11 is clean and unclean animals. Now they haven't talked about that for several chapters, but now they return to it. You shall make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean, between the unclean bird and the clean. You shall not bring abomination on yourselves by animal or by bird or with anything with which the ground teems, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and I have separated you from the other peoples to be mine. There's something about that issue of which animals are clean and unclean that becomes the envelope structure of this whole thing. It becomes the emblem of the entire purity code that's going to become crucial for the gospel of mark because when in mark 7 when jesus declares all foods clean when he cancels the food laws the effect is that he seems to be canceling the entire purity code by doing so because the food laws are the emblem of the whole thing okay What in the world is all this stuff all about? What does it mean? We're at a a little bit of a disadvantage because just as with our own purity codes that we grow up with and don't have any reason for, like, no, we don't pierce ears in our culture. Well, why not? Is there something wrong with it? We had to reassess that later on and now it's perfectly okay. There are no reasons given for most of the purity law that we find in the Bible. There are simply the regulations. You might get some instructions for how to how to sort things out, like, well, when you're talking about land animals, which are clean and which are not, the ones that are clean are the ones that have part have cloven hooves and chew the cud. And the rest of them, no. Well, the issue isn't that they part the hoof and chew the cud. That's just the identifying mark. So we're going to look for, in the sweep of all of this purity law, do we get any clues that help us interpret what this is about and what, if anything, it means? I think the answer is yes. Clue number one. I mentioned uh, that... That this, a lot of this has to do with the body, with what you put into the body, and with what comes out of the body. And there are sociologists that will talk about this as a regular feature of purity codes all around the world, that the body itself is, is this uh, container, and whatever leaks out of it is unclean. But when you actually look at the different, all the different bodily fluids and ask which ones are unclean, in the Bible's purity law something interesting shows up so think about all the different things that flow out of the body is spit unclean no urine no feces no there is a passage in Deuteronomy where if they're out in a, in a, in a camp of war um, then, if in the camp, if you need to go number two, and you decide uh, what you're supposed to do, then is go outside the camp, dig a hole, and poop out there and cover it up. Um, and what it goes on to say is, the Lord walks around your camp. The idea seems to be God doesn't want to step in the stuff. There's a sense that it's gross. There's a sense that uh, nobody wants to step in it, but it's never labeled unclean. Poop is not unclean. Vomit is not unclean. Uh, Pus is not unclean. Um, Whatever fluids you can think of now, none of the bodily fluids that leak out of the body are unclean, except for two, blood and sexual fluids. Each one of those, in fact, gets a whole chapter to itself in Leviticus. Well, of all of those bodily fluids, what do blood and sexual fluids have in common that the others do not have. They're the fluids of life. They're the fluids of life and death. Those are the ones that make you unclean. And once again, please notice that to be that unclean doesn't necessarily mean wrong or bad. It puts you in this marginal, liminal state where um, life is at stake. And so at the time of childbirth, at the time of death, at the time when um, the fluids of life are leaking out of a body, um, that's when uncleanness, that's when you are in this kind of heightened state of danger and and of special care. That's another way to think about this, that these are the fluids that call for special care and attention. That's clue number one. Clue number two, of the animals and the foods, uh, which ones are clean and which ones are unclean? Well, it's not terribly clear. But when you actually start to look at, for example, which birds are, are unclean, uh, there's a listing of them for, the, for you there in Leviticus 11, and the birds, all of the birds that are listed as unclean are either Raptors, like eagles and hawks, or carrion eaters that eat dead bodies. The ones that are unclean are the ones that eat other animals or eat dead bodies. Maybe a more accurate way to talk about that in a Hebrew context is that they are the ones that consume blood. How about the the land beasts, the four-legged beasts on the land? The ones that are unclean are all carnivores. The ones you're allowed to eat are the ungulates, the ones that chew their cud, the cow family, the deer family, the goat, goat and sheep family. Those you can eat. So once again, with both the birds and the beasts, you've got The clean ones are the ones that do not consume other animals or their blood. Those two first two clues really, um, for me, form the groundwork of what this purity code is trying to say. This is a code that lifts up life as opposed to death and honors life. I think, for example, um, of the Native American practices of when, the, when it was time to, um, to shoot a deer or something for their food. They would apologize to the deer and thank the deer for the gift. There's an honoring of that life, even as the life is taken. That would be something equivalent to Hebrew slitting the throat and pouring the blood into the ground. Here's a third clue. This is a really strange one. I want to go to the leprosy chapter. This is Leviticus 13. Um, And so a person has a swelling or an eruption or a spot, some kind of a skin disease. They go to the priest to be examined, and if the the priest says, yep, you've got a skin disease, you are to separate yourself for a week and then come back and check in again later. And then, then there's this strange passage. Leviticus 13, verses 12 and 13. If the disease breaks out in the skin so that it covers all of the skin of the diseased person from head to foot, as far as the priest can see. So this disease has covered you completely. Then the priest shall make an examination, and if the disease has covered all his body, he shall pronounce the person clean of the disease. Since it has turned all white, he is clean. I beg your pardon? What kind of medicine is this? If the disease covers your entire body, now you're clean, not unclean? Now you know we are not talking medicine. We are talking purity, which is something different. What's the What's going on here? Well, if the disease covers the entire body, then your body is no longer mottled, no longer mixed. You are one again. You are whole and complete. You're completely diseased. You're completely covered. Wholeness is the key here. It's a strange world, isn't it? That will be reflected also later on in Leviticus 21 and 22 when the priests can only serve at the altar if their bodies are whole and undamaged. And, they can, and sacrifices can only be offered if the animal is whole and unblemished. Wholeness is a piece of this of the picture. And wholeness also is a testimony, is a testimony to the gift of life. It's a problem then if you're... If you happen to be blind or have some other disfigurement and you can't serve in those ways, those are issues that have to be raised later. Here's another clue. That whole issue of dividing and, and discerning and separating, you shall divide between the clean and the unclean. You shall divide between you shall separate the two kinds from each other. The the verb that's used there in Leviticus 10 and Leviticus 20, the Hebrew verb that's used, is the same verb that's used in the story of creation in Genesis 1. Do you remember the process of God creating? God creates by speaking, but then God also creates by separating. God separates the light from the darkness. God separates the dry land from the water. God separates the day from the night. These acts of separation create zones that are habitable. If the sea didn't stay where it belongs, if the sea sea came rushing up over the land, life couldn't be sustained. And so this separation, this division for the sake of Uh, making a habitable place for life. That's a key piece of Israel's understanding of creation. It's a key piece of purity. And what that means then is that the practice of observing purity is seen as a way to, to help all of us, helping to preserve the lines of creation and keep them healthy. That's what's going on in that strange business about the two kinds. You shall not mix two kinds of animal together and make a hybrid. You shall not mix two kinds of seed in your field. You shall not mix two kinds of fabric. Keep them separate. Keep them distinct. The practice of, di- of distinguishing and of keeping the lines clear is helping maintain creation. It's helping to keep chaos at bay. These are the main, th- the main themes then that reverberate in Israel's purity law. Life, life versus death and the precious gift of life. Wholeness that serves life. And keeping the lines clear so that life can, can flourish. Now that last piece, keeping lines clear, is going to be a bit of a problem if you happen to be the sort of person whose very life has mixture in it. If you, uh, if you participate in more than one kind, then you don't fit. That's part of where Jesus is going to come in. Now with that picture of creation and chaos, I want you to think for just a moment about the sea. The sea is never called unclean, but that kind of primordial water, that sea becomes the emblem of chaos God creates by separating out light from dark, water from land, etc. Um, and so creating zones of creation. Um, but if, if those lines fail, if the water comes back over the line, creation comes undone. That's what's happening in the flood story. Creation is coming undone. Israel had a, a fear of the sea a terror of the sea because it was the emblem of chaos of uncreation so when we move now on Sunday into these sea crossings and uh, the storms come up on the sea there are reverberations of chaos in these stories as well one final piece of Israel's purity purity code and that came in chapter 20 Uh, At the end where God says, so I have separated you from the nations. The purity law is also a separating of Israel from others. So that here is this people who lives and practices purity as this massive visual aid. And one of the results of that, and even one of the purposes of that, is to create a separate people, a people who will be living in a distinct kind of way. That's important. That's identity. And so in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus starts tampering with purity, he's also tampering, tampering with identity. Who belongs and who doesn't. Who's in and who's out. There's a lot more we could explore. One other angle of purity is metaphorical purity. We've, we've all been talking literal bodies and fluids and corpses and whatever else. Uh, but as as Israel lives with purity, they start to use that language metaphorically as well. I'll simply give you the one example that you already know really well from Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me a clean heart. Now Israel was already thinking in terms of metaphorical or spiritual or inner purity. And Jesus will pick up on that. As we move in it, into this next section of the Gospel of Mark, I'd like you to think a little about Jesus and purity. Here's what we've seen so far. He comes across unclean spirits. That language is already there in the, the talk of demons, the unclean spirits, while he himself is the Holy One of God. In chapter 1, Jesus, the Holy One of God, meets that leper. Do you remember what he did? Jesus Touched him according to purity law that makes Jesus unclean and sure enough now he has to stay outside outside of the towns in chapter 4 now Jesus rebukes the sea that emblem of chaos chapter 5 now is going to be filled with multiple impurities and we'll see how they affect Jesus and how Jesus affects impurity Then in chapter 7, that'll be a week from Sunday, Jesus will redefine purity altogether, and in the process, he will erase the line between us and them. That's what we're going into on Sunday and the Sunday after.